I'm sure you've noticed that our culture is obsessed with the end of the world. Apocalyptic movies, apocalyptic books. It's all, I think, well, at least as long as I can remember, it's been this way. Now, now growing up, it was always about World War III and, and nuclear apocalypse. But times have changed. Cold War's over. We're still consumed with worries about the end. Now our apocalyptic movies and stories are about the zombie apocalypse or an alien apocalypse or, of course, a pandemic apocalypse. And all of these apocalyptic movies and stories, they always follow one of two plot arcs. Either the world comes close to ending. It gets right up to the very edge of ending, but then is saved by the heroic efforts of some hero or band of heroes. Or we're on the other side of the apocalypse. The apocalypse has happened, but but now the story arc follows this band of intrepid survivors who are forging ahead and, and starting over against all odds. It's very entertaining. But I think it also tells us something about our collective psyche as a culture. It seems to me, if our literature and movies are telling us anything, it's that we know, deep down, we know the end is coming. And it terrifies us. Movies like World War Z or or The Walking Dead or The Quiet Place, they allow us to effectively externalize our fears and then vicariously, through, through the literature, through the movie, kind of prepare for the worst and, and tell ourselves, we can do this. We've got this. And then, of course, we get to walk away and reassure ourselves, well, it was just a movie. People have been saying the end of the world is nigh since... Well, since almost the beginning of the world. And it hasn't come yet. This spring, we've been studying the book of Revelation, written by the Apostle John around 95 AD, probably the last or almost the last book of the New Testament written. He has given us in this book what I've called a, a room with a view, right? A heavenly perspective on life here below, helping us to live life faithfully here on earth. And and as I've tried to point out throughout this series, as we approach the end, we're not quite at the end yet, but we're getting close. As I've tried to point out throughout the series, John's visions are not just about the last day, the, the last day of history, but they're about the last days, the, the time in between Christ's first coming and his second coming, the, the beginning of the end, as it were. But I'm sure you've noticed as we've been going through this series, this is no Hollywood screenplay where disaster is averted or or the survivors bravely carry on. Throughout the book, over and over and over again, we've arrived at the end, at Judgment Day. And that's where we arrived this morning. In our text this morning, John describes Not the last days, 
But the last day, the end of the world, the final fall of what he calls Babylon. I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation 17. We're going to be looking at three chapters this morning. Revelation 17, 18, and 19. Let me just read the first verse. Revelation 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the judgment of the notorious prostitute who is seated on many waters. Now let me explain what's going on right there before we get, go any further. Our, our passage, chapter 17 to most of 19, is the conclusion of the sixth major section of the book of Revelation. It's divided into seven sections. We've kind of been moving through them. This is the conclusion of the sixth major section, which began with the seven bowls of judgment being poured out. Now, you'll remember that when we looked at the seven seals and the seven trumpets, there was a pause in between the sixth and the seventh. We got up to the sixth seal, we got up to the sixth trumpet, and then, and then there was this pause, there was this interlude, and, and we were given these other visions that were basically designed to help us see what was going on behind the scenes, sort of the spiritual background to what those seals or trumpets meant. But there was no pause with the bowls. We moved directly from the sixth to the seventh. Literarily, John was signifying that, that in describing the bowls, he's describing the completion, the end of God's wrath. Instead, the, the visionary interlude that gives us sort of the spiritual background of what was going on in the bowls comes after. That's what's going on here in chapters 17 and 18. It's as if now John is kind of sort of double click on the sixth and seventh bowls to show us exactly what does it mean when he said back in Revelation 16, verse 19, the great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered in God's presence. He gave her the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. These two chapters are filling that out. What does that look like? And, and to go back to my movie illustration at the beginning, John is giving us quite a film in these chapters. We, we, we've talked throughout the book of Revelation that, that we haven't gone to the library here. We, we've, gone, we've gone to the movies. And these two chapters are filled with extraordinary cinematic imagery of the last day. But they have something else. Like any great movie, they come with a soundtrack, a score that accompanies the incredible scenes that we're going to see. We're going to see in, in these two chapters, first, a, a chorus of doom and woe that swells to a climax, only at, at the last to then be overtaken by, by another chorus of, of joy and, and victory. It turns out, at the end of the world, everyone is singing. It's the end of the world as we know it. 
It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel... Well, that's the question, isn't it? How will you feel when the end of the world comes? We're going to look at the movie, and then we're going to listen to the soundtrack. That's, that's the order. Two great movements in, in, the, uh, in the sermon this morning. So first, it's the end of the world as we know it. Look again at chapter 17, verse 1. And apologies to R.E.M. <laughs> then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the judgment of the notorious prostitute who is seated on many waters. The kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her, and those who live on the earth became drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. Then he carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, jewels, and pearls. She had a golden cup in her hand filled with everything detestable and with the impurities of her prostitution. On her forehead was written a name, a mystery, Babylon the Great the mother of prostitutes and of the detestable things of the earth. Then I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Okay, we're going to stop there. We have met Babylon and the beast, this scarlet beast before, but we've never met them together like this. Babylon as John has presented her, is is not a a person, not even a single city. Babylon represents the whole world, the the world in its powerful cultural, religious, and economic expression opposed to God and his people. It's it's where, and I think this is why he particularly uses this name for her, it's where God's people were historically in exile, pressured and tempted to compromise and to go along in order to get along, to to be like the world. Now, we've also seen the beast before in the book of Revelation. The beast, drawing from the images of Daniel, is the world in its persecuting political power, particularly persecuting power against the church, because the world in its political expression is, is opposed to any and all allegiance except to itself. And Christians, in particular, do not give their allegiance to the political powers of this world. Now, put together like this, Babylon the prostitute and all of her luxurious success, riding the beast with its horns of power. What's John doing here? What John is doing is he's alerting us that the world is both. It is both. Sometimes the world is more beastly, persecuting the church. Sometimes the world is more whorish, tempting the church to compromise. But, but whether beastly or whorish, the world is waging acts of warfare and hostility against God and God's people. We're told that Babylon is drunk 
with the blood of the saints and witnesses to Jesus. There at the end of verse 6. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get into all the details of verses 7 to 14, which will disappoint many of you. But I'm dealing with three chapters, so we just don't have time to get into all of the details. But, but just suffice it to say that, that what follows, not just in chapter 17, but uh, across the three chapters we're looking at now, are a series of angelic announcements that look forward in time, that, that are prophesying the final judgment of the world, first as Babylon, then as beast. Now, just a, a quick aside on just the structure of the book of Revelation and what I'm doing here, because for many of you, this won't matter. This, this would be a moment to like read a few verses they haven't read yet and are, we're, we're confused about. But for those of you that really care about the structure of the book of Revelation, I want to acknowledge that I am cheating a little bit. The, the, the sixth section actually doesn't go all the way through to the end of chapter 19. It ends halfway through chapter 19. But I'm including the beginning of the seventh section of the book, the end of chapter 19, so that I can give all of my attention in two weeks to chapter 20, which for some of you is the main reason you've been listening to this sermon series, because you want to know what I'm going to say about the millennium. So I'm stealing a little bit from the next section of the book into this sermon so that I can give my full attention in two weeks to the millennium. All right, enough on structure. What I want you to notice as we, as we walk through these three chapters here this first time is that each of these angelic announcements, and I'm going to group them into three announcements, each of them highlight a different aspect of this final judgment on the world. And in chapter 17, what we learn is that God's judgment of the world, his final judgment of the world, will be ironic. It will be ironic. So we, we see the, the Babylon riding the beast. They're, the, they're this team together. They're, they're going, we're told in, in verse 14, to, to make war against the lamb. These will make war against the lamb. The lamb will conquer them because he's the Lord of lords and king of kings. Well, off Babylon goes, riding on the beast to make war against the lamb. And all of a sudden, things don't go as Babylon had planned. Look at verse 15. He also said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute was seated are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The ten horns you saw and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his plan. By having one purpose and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman you saw is the great city that has royal power over the kings of the earth. In an ironic twist, judgment falls on Babylon through the hands of the beast. The political power turns on the cultural and economic and, and religious power and destroys it. We're given three different images of that, of that destruction there in those few verses I just read. First, a, a, a prostitute exposed as a prostitute and stripped naked, shamed. And then, and then a, a dead soldier on the field of battle being devoured by the wild animals. And then finally, a city once strong but now under siege, burning. 
And all of this, we're told, is according to God's plans. As, as wickedness turns on itself in self-destructive frenzy, wickedness is, in fact, accomplishing its own judgment according, we're told, to the purpose of God, the, the plan of God to fulfill the words of God. There, there are examples of this all over Scripture. You, you see it uh, in, in, in the book of Judges with, with Gideon when all of a sudden the, the, the camp of the Midianites turns on itself and destroys themselves. You see it throughout the, the wicked kings of Israel as one king rises up and wipes out another one only to have the process start over again. You see it in the judgment that God brings upon the nations that oppose Israel as one empire overthrows another empire. You see it with, with Sennacherib who came against Israel with his armies. And then in one night, the angel of the Lord comes and wipes out his armies and then he goes home and his own sons kill him. I really think this is actually where J.R. Tolkien got the idea of the enemy turning on itself. You'll remember that great scene in the, in, I believe it comes in Two Towers, Anyway, in, and I have no idea which movie it comes in, but there's the scene where Mary and Pippin are, are, have been captured by, by the orcs, and then all of a sudden, a new band of orcs arrives, and they turn on themselves right as they're about to eat Mary and Pippin, and destroy themselves, and Mary and Pippin get away. Christian, it is so easy to think of evil and wickedness in this world as a unified front, intimidating and terrifying in all of its aspects. But of course it's not. Where's wickedness going to find a center to be unified around? Where is there going to be any kind of mutual feeling and love and compassion? Where's that unity going to come from? It's 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 not. Far from being a coherent order, wickedness is a house divided. And so it falls. So it will fall. All according to God's plan and purpose. So I know it's easy right now, Christian, to to look out at the world and to look at all sorts of things that are going on out there. And to be afraid. To be afraid of what might be coming at you. To be afraid of what might be coming for, for your children or, or your grandchildren. To be, to be afraid of what you might face. John wants us to know that God has a plan. And he's accomplishing that plan. And that even wickedness itself will be used by God in his sovereignty to bring judgment on wickedness. God's judgment will be ironic as a house divided, falls. But God's judgment is not only ironic. It's also just. Let's look at chapter 18. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. I'm going to read the first eight verses. After this, I saw another angel with great authority coming down from heaven, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. He called out in a mighty voice, It has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. 
She has become a home for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird and a haunt for every unclean and despicable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown wealthy from her sensuality and excess. Then I heard another voice come from heaven. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins or receive any of her plagues for her sins are piled up to heaven. And God has remembered her crimes. Pay her back the way she also paid and double it according to her works in the cup in which she mixed, mixed a double portion for her. As much as she glorified herself and indulged her sensual and excessive ways, give her that much torment and grief. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen. I'm not a widow and I will never see grief. For this reason, her plagues will come in just one day, death and grief and famine. She will be burned up with fire because the Lord God who judges her is mighty. Now, now skip down to verse 21, the, the end of chapter 18. Then a mighty angel picked up a stone like a large millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, In this way, Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down violently and never be found again. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No craftsman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a mill will never be found in, heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. And the voice of a groom and bride will never be heard in you again. All this will happen because your merchants were the nobility of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. In her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all those slaughtered. On the earth. All right, the middle of this chapter, the part that I skipped over, is the first swelling of the soundtrack. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But the book ends, the beginning and the end of the chapter, are this pair of angelic announcements of the exceedingly just judgment of Babylon by God. The, the first angel describes the, the, de, the, the desolation of Babylon. He's drawing in those opening verses from Isaiah chapter 13 and Isaiah chapter 34 and Ezekiel chapters 26 and 28, which respectively describe the fall of Babylon, of Edom and of Tyre. But the emphasis is not so much on how bad it's going to be. Now, the emphasis in this first angelic announcement is on why the judgment has arrived. It is because of her immorality, because of her greed, and because of her pride. You see that there in verse 3. Why is this coming? For all the nations have drunk the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown wealthy from her sensuality and excess. And, and then you get it again, the pride in verse 7. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, I am not a widow, and I will never see grief. So judgment is coming for specific sins, for specific rebellion, summarized under this idea of immorality, greed, and pride. And we're told that the judgment will be precisely measured. It will be double for her sins. Pay her back the way she also paid, verse 6, and 
double it according to her works. In the cup in which she mixed, mixed a double portion for her. Then we get to the end of the chapter. And in verses 21 to 24, another angel illustrates her fall. A millstone, a giant millstone. Not something that you might have in your home bakery. But this giant millstone that could only be driven by oxen. Thrown into the sea and sinking, sinking, sinking down into the depths. And then the angel announces a devastating series of joys that will never again be found in her. No more music ever. No more craftsmanship. Ever. No more abundance. Those millstones grinding. No, no more abundance and plenty. Ever. No more light. Ever. And maybe worst of all, no more love. No joyous sound of bride and bridegroom. Ever again. Gone. Like that millstone sunk into the sea. And once again, we're told why. Verse 23. It is because of her greed. Your merchants, the nobility of the earth, getting rich off of all this sin. Her deception, deceiving the nations by her sorcery, the, the, the idolatry and the lies and the falsehoods that the world promulgates. And her pride, which leads to her contempt for human life, especially the lives of the saints. For in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all those slaughtered on the earth. This is why the picture is so desolate. When judgment comes, it will be evidently, clearly, exceedingly just. And the punishment will perfectly fit the crime. I've talked about this a lot here. We've, we've seen it in the Old Testament, and John has brought this up again and again and again. It is this principle that God's judgment is lex talionis, the law of tooth and claw. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. No more, no less. This picks up a different aspect of the lex talionic, the, the just judgment of God. And it's this idea of being paid back double. What, what's going on there? I thought it was eye for eye. How can it be two eyes for, for one eye, as it were? What, what's, what's going on here? It, it's, it's, a, it's a different angle on the same idea of justice. It basically says what was taken must be given back. Well, great. Everything's good now? I, I took it. I benefited from it. Now I'm giving it back to you and I can go on my merry way? N no. What was taken must be, must be given back. It's restitution. Oh, but now 
a penalty must be paid. No more, but no less than what was taken originally. What was taken must be paid back and then paid again as punishment. For every human life taken, a life given and then given again. For every measure of pride expressed, an equal measure of humiliation given and then given again. I know we struggle as Christians, as non-Christians. I think everybody struggles with, with the idea that eternal punishment could be just. How, how could it be just to make people pay for their sin forever with, with, with no end in sight? We need to consider that our sin is not finally against one another. Our sin is finally against the infinite and holy and eternal God who made you. In your sin, you have robbed God. You have robbed God of the glory that he is due. You have robbed God of the worship that he is due. And instead, you have taken what belonged to him and you've sought to to exalt yourself. Like, I'm going to take you off the throne, God, and I'm going to put myself there. What does justice demand? Justice demands both restitution and penalty. Justice demands that what was taken be given back and then given Again, how will you ever get to the end of that sentence? God's judgment will be ironic. It will be just. But third, it will also be triumphant. It will be triumphant. Flip over to chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he called out in a loud voice saying to all the birds flying high overhead, come gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of military commanders, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of horses and of their riders, and the flesh of everyone, both free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. But the beast was taken prisoner and along with it, the false prophet 
who had performed the signs in its presence. He deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image with these signs. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds ate their fill of their flesh. One last angel appears in this section that we're looking at today. And that angel calls the birds of heaven to the great supper of God. It is yet another picture. We've seen one already. Another picture of Armageddon. The end of the world as as the beasts, the false prophets and the armies of the kings of the earth and all of their followers gather to oppose the rider on the white horse. And we know who that rider is. We've seen him before. This is Christ at his second coming. Now, it has every appearance of being a great battle. And then all of a sudden it's not like there's there's no contest. Everybody is gathered for this battle, not realizing that actually they've gathered for a feast and they are on the menu. The beast and the false prophet are taken alive, prisoner, cast into hell. Those loyal to the world, all those deceived by the world, all those bearing the marks of allegiance to the world are killed in judgment by the word of God. And it's over just like that. Christian, it's easy to think that we live in a Manichaean world, a a, a world in which good and evil are evenly balanced and the fate of everything is constantly on a knife's edge and we're not sure which way it's going to go. But believer, Christian, it's not true. It's not true. When the end comes, there will be no contest. It will be sudden. It will be swift And it will be triumphant. There will be no court of appeal. There will be no second chance. The world in its deception, the world in its opposition to God will be utterly, finally, fully and triumphantly overthrown. I mean, again, to draw on Lord of the Rings again. I mean, I have this image right there at the end, the, the, the great last battle between the gates of Mordor. And, and it looks like it's going to be a real battle. And actually, it looks like it's going to be a slaughter and the good guys are going to, are going to lose. But then all of a sudden, the ring is destroyed. And it all just comes crashing down. There is no battle. It's over. Friends, this is what it will be like. Oh, it may feel like it's a battle now. And indeed, the New Testament uses much battle imagery to remind us we we are in a fight. But Christian, the outcome of the fight is not in question. We know the end of the story. The Lord rides out on his white horse. And the end of the world. It's over. Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So what does that mean for us as Christians? Is is this a call for us to gloat? Uh Aha, we're going to win, you're going to lose. Is, Is it a call to rub it in? 
Uh, should we try and speed things up? Let, let's, let's get this day here quickly. Maybe we can do some things that will bring about the end faster. John doesn't have any of those things in mind throughout this section. John's call to Christians in showing us this movie of the end of the world is, is really clear. We, we see it three different times, maybe most clearly right in chapter 18. Look at chapter 18, verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins or receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. Come out of her, my people. The world is going to perdition. The world is going to be judged. And our first response must be to come out of her. He says it a, a different way, kind of implies it there at the end of verse 19, when he, when he, uh, chapter 19, where in verse 20 he notes that all those who were deceived by the beast and the false prophet will be killed by the sword. Don't be deceived, Christian. By the false promises of this world, false religions, false ideologies. He, he reminds us again, it's really same idea in chapter 17. Where in, in verse 14, which we looked at earlier, you, you know, the Babylon and the beast were riding out to make war together against against the lamb. And, and we're told but the lamb will conquer them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. We see that same language again in chapter 19. Those with him are called chosen. And faithful. And faithful. Faith in Christ is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Faith in Christ is not a punch your ticket and then go on your merry way because everything's taken care of. The gospel saves us from sin. Absolutely. Declaratively. Objectively. The gospel saves us from sin. But if we stop there, we haven't understood the gospel because the gospel doesn't just save us from sin. The gospel saves us to God. It saves us to God. It declares us forgiven. But then it sets us apart for him to a life of faithfulness and worship. A life that is centered around giving God glory rather than seeking it for ourselves. This vision of the end of the world is not meant to produce gloating on the part of the Christian. It should give you confidence, but it should also, in a godly way, provoke the fear of God in you. This vision is meant in part to warn believers, don't compromise. Don't be implicated in the world and its ways. Don't be a part of the world and a part of the church as if you could kind of play both sides and time Judgment Day the way people try to time the market. It doesn't work that way. If you participate with the world, Christian, John is very clear you will share in the world's judgment. 
because love of the world means love of the Father was never in you. So that means we need to know how the world is coming at us, how it is likely to trip us up, how it is most likely to tempt us into compromise or cower us into compromise. And there are a bunch of Christians in this room, and we're all different. We're all in different situations. We all have different personalities. We all have different strengths and weaknesses. It, the, 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 the world is wily. The world comes at us as individuals. How does the world come at you, and how is it most likely to trip you up? Is it, is it as Babylon or as beast? Are you facing, and I know some of you are, beastly persecution? Maybe you're, you're feeling coercive power at work on your job to go along with, with certain ideas or practices, to make certain statements in order to keep your employment. Yeah, that's beastly coercion. If, if that's you, how are you preparing for it? Do you know what you're going to say? Do you know what you're going to do when it comes? Have you prepared yourself? Have you prepared your family that you might have to give up a job, change jobs? You might have to downscale your lifestyle in order to stay faithful to Christ. John wants us to be prepared for when the beast comes at you. But, but for some of you, it's not the beast. Like, you're, you're all prepared to go down in, you know, flames of glory. Now, it's not the beast that's your problem. It's the whore. It's Babylon. Are you facing the prostitute's temptation to compromise? To compromise in pursuit of wealth or pleasure, to compromise in pursuit of power or recognition, to compromise in pursuit of security? Is it Babylon with her allure that you are facing? If so, how are you preparing? What what, what are you doing to, to, to recognize maybe your own weakness, your, your own particular temptations, and, and be prepared to flee temptation, to flee compromise. Which are you more susceptible to? I, I think this is really where we need each other. This is, this is where the church, the local church, becomes so important in our lives as believers, Right? Because honestly, whether you're facing the beast or you're facing Babylon, it's a fearsome foe you're up against. And to face it alone is to set yourself up. Not for losing your salvation, but certainly for being tripped up in sin, in temptation, in failure. Are there people in your life here in this local church that you've invited in? And they know 
what you're more susceptible, susceptible to. They know what your temptations are. They know where your weaknesses are because you've volunteered them. You've self-disclosed and you've invited others in to help you stand. Uh, this has been one of the things that's been hardest about this pandemic year, isn't it? We've, we've been so isolated from one another. We've been so separated from one another. It's been difficult to allow the means of grace that is the fellowship of the saints to encourage us. Lord willing, we're close to the end. But, but, but I hope it's helped drive home this point for you. Members of Henson Baptist Church, we need each other. We need to prioritize one another in our lives because the world is opposed to us. The world is opposed to our Savior. The world is opposed to our God. The world is drunk with the blood of the saints and the prophets. And if she is able, she wants your blood to be found in her too. Babylon and the beast will fall under God's judgment. And we need to be prepared. It will be an ironic judgment, a just judgment, a triumphant judgment. But as I mentioned, this movie comes with a soundtrack. At the end of the world, everyone is singing. The two sections that I've skipped over are like kind of two separate choirs, both of whom are, are singing almost simultaneously. Their songs swell as the world falls. I, in, in my own mind, I had that, that powerful image uh, from uh, The Mission. Uh, old movie, many of you haven't seen it. Uh, Robert De Niro, great, great film. You really should see The Mission if you haven't seen it. But you've got these two kind of simultaneous things going on in the climactic woman, moment as, as on the one hand, the, the world of this, of this Amazonian tribe is falling. But on the other hand, the faith of the saints is singing. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel what we hear first is the voices of those who do not feel fine. As those whose loyalty and allegiance was with Babylon sing a song of doom and woe the final lament of the world. Look at chapter 18, verse 9. The kings of the earth who have committed sexual immorality and shared her sensual and excessive ways will weep and mourn over her when they see the smoke from her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment, saying, 
Woe, woe, the great city, Babylon, the mighty city, for in a single hour your judgment has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargo any longer. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet, all kinds of fragrant wood products, objects of ivory, objects of expensive wood, brass, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, Incense, myrrh and frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour and grain, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages and slaves, human lives. The fruit you craved has left you. All your splendid and glamorous things are gone. They will never find them again. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand far off in a fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, jewels and pearls, for in a single hour such fabulous wealth was destroyed. And every shipmaster, seafarer, sailors, all who do business by sea stood far off as they watched the smoke from her burning and kept crying out, Who was like the great city? They threw dust on their heads and kept crying out, weeping and mourning, Woe, woe, the great city, where all those who have ships on the sea became rich from her wealth, for in a single hour she was destroyed. Rejoice over her, heaven, and you saints, apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced on her the judgment she passed on you. We hear three sections In this great choir, this soundtrack of doom and woe, the kings of the earth, the the merchants who did trade with Babylon and became rich off her and, and the sailors, basically the powerful, the rich and the workers, everybody else. They are representing all of humanity. And the response is to mourn. And to stand far off in fear, they have lost everything. Every kind of commerce. Every kind of luxury. Every kind of of basic good that you would need just to live life on earth. It's a picture of unrelenting woe. Because everything that they had put their hope in is gone. Gone forever. So here I must say, if you are not a Christian and and you are listening to my words, you are listening to the words of Scripture here, have you grappled with what the end of the world, which as far as you are concerned, is the end of your life, have you grappled with what that means? Now, I know everyone knows you can't take it with you. But if everybody knows that, how come nobody lives that way? Whatever you are living your life for in this life, be it wealth or pleasure or fame or security or power or respect or significance Whatever it is that you are living your life for in this life, you know it will end with this mortal life. It will not last. It will all be over. It will all be destroyed. Except for you. Not you. 
See, you've been made by God with an immortal soul. And when everything else is gone, the testimony of the scriptures is that you will be left like these merchants and sailors standing in the ruin of your own life with nothing. Nothing with which to rebuild. You're you're not the band of plucky survivors on the other side of the apocalypse. Nothing with which to try again. Nothing with which to start over. Left with nothing. I think this song of woe in Revelation 19, 18, might be the most terrifying image of hell in the whole Bible. I know people get all worked up over fire and brimstone, physical torment. But the unending, desolating emptiness of the loss of everything, including hope itself, On and on and on into an unending future. Surely that is the most terrifying image of hell in the whole Bible. And I do not paint that picture for you as a scare tactic. I'm not trying to abuse anybody, I'm not trying to scare you into belief. pleading with you to wake up. As this song of woe climaxes, it's as if the one choir singing this song of doom and woe recognizes faintly there's another choir. There's another choir singing And in verse 20, those who weep acknowledge and almost hand off their song to those who are rejoicing. That's the other part of the soundtrack. And we hear it in the opening verses of chapter 19. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard something like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. A second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who is seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. A voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all his servants and the ones who fear him, both small and great. And then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, hallelujah, because our Lord God, the almighty reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice and give him glory because the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, write, 
Blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, these words of God are true. And then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's the end of the world as we know it. And this choir, this choir feels fine. This choir is singing with great joy. Now, we've seen the sections of this choir before, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, the angelic hosts, the vast multitude drawn from every tribe, language, and nation. We, we saw them early on in chapter uh, uh, 5, chapter 7. But, but now we see them one last time, and everyone's there. From the smallest to the greatest, like no one's missing. It's the redeemed. It's God's people, the elect, the chosen, the called, the faithful. From every time and age. And they are singing a song of joy and gladness. We find out at the end, it's a a wedding song. And and it's being sung at at a wedding banquet. And, and they're absolutely overwhelmed in joy. Why are they joyful? Are they, are they rejoicing that other people are suffering? No. They're rejoicing that wickedness has been overthrown, that justice has been done, that persecution has been brought to an end, that their suffering has been avenged, and that their faith has been vindicated. And I've got to say to you, Christian, this is your future. This is your future. You have been invited in the gospel and in accepting Christ, you have accepted that invitation. You are welcomed at the marriage feast of the Lamb. And we are going to celebrate at the end of our service today uh, like a little preview of that wedding feast and the Lord's Supper. This is your future. So what what should you be doing? You should be getting ready. You should be you should be getting prepared. Right. Uh, look, look at look at verse seven again in verse 19. Let us be glad, rejoice and give him glory because the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. If on the last day the bride has prepared herself, that means that before we get there, she is preparing herself. She, she's being prepared. This is what's going on in the Christian life right now. We are preparing ourselves for that day and we are being prepared for that day. And on that day, we will be gorgeous. Gorgeous. Resplendent. Resplendent in the white linen of the righteous acts of the saints. Verse 8. Our obedience today, our, our faithfulness today, our, our sacrificial love today, our painful repentance today is not what we're doing in order to earn an invitation to the wedding feast of the Lamb. No. No, it's... As I, as I reminded you, we, we've already been invited. In the gospel, you've been invited. In accepting the gospel, you've accepted the invitation. You've already been invited. All of our obedience, all of our righteousness, all of our good needs, all of our faith, all of our faithfulness, all of our repentance, all of our love is like a bride 
getting dressed for her wedding day. I, in the weekly devotional that I sent out to the congregation this week, I kind of drew on some stories from my own wedding day. And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't in the room. But 31 years ago, when, when Adrian was getting dressed for our wedding day, I don't think she was going to all that trouble. And it was a lot of trouble. Like it took the whole day for her and her bridesmaids to get ready. But I don't think she was going through all of that trouble the whole time thinking, gosh, I, I hope he accepts me. Maybe if I put on a little bit more makeup, you know, he'll accept me. No, no. I had already put the ring on her finger. I had asked her to marry me. She had said yes. I was committed. She was committed. All of that getting dressed was because she was excited about what was about to happen. It was all about getting ready for the party, getting ready for the celebration. And there wasn't an ounce of, oh no, am I doing enough? Am I going to be pretty enough? Is my, is my dress going to be nice enough? So that he doesn't walk away from me when I come down the aisle? No! Christian, you're thinking about your obedience the wrong way. Day in and day out, you're getting up and you're thinking, I've got to obey so that he'll love me. You're thinking you're about to walk into a job interview. Now, I get it. We get dressed up for lots of different things. And one of the things we do is we get dressed up for a job interview because we're trying to impress. We're hoping they'll hire us. It's not a job interview. It's a wedding day. You're getting dressed for a different reason. And that's the way you need to think about a life of obedience. You're getting dressed for your wedding. What a joyful thought. We should conclude. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel... How will you feel? Friends, the good news of the gospel... The good news of Christianity is that you are invited to sing in the choir that's going to end that refrain, I feel fine. That's the choir you want to sing in. And the gospel is inviting you into it. The image in Revelation 19 is of this triumphant warrior who's ridden out to defeat the enemy and bring his bride home. And his robe is splattered with the blood of his foes. It is a picture of Christ at his second coming. But what that means is that he's already come the first time. You don't get a second coming unless you had a first coming. And when Jesus came the first time, he came as a warrior. He came to do battle. He came as the word of God with that sharp sword from his mouth. He came as the faithful and true. But when he came the first time, he rode out not with armies at his back. But he rode out alone. As our champion. 
And in single combat, he grappled with our greatest foes, sin and Satan and death itself. And on that day when he rode out, he was splattered with blood then too, but it was his own blood. For on the cross, he died for us. And in the ground, he was buried for us. But he was no more defeated on that day than he will be defeated on the last day day. Jesus suffered the judgment of God, ironically, justly, and triumphantly on the cross. He suffered the loss of everything so that all who repent of their sins and put their faith in him might find that on the last day they have gained everything. The love of God. Eternal life. Never ending fellowship with the most beautiful people you've ever met. And an unending feast that is the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is what we want you to come to. This is what we want you to believe and trust in if you are not a believer. Christian, this is what I want you to live in If you are a believer. Now that day. That's talked about here in Revelation 17, 18, 19. That day is still in the future. None of us knows how long until that day and hour arrives. But here's what we do know. Because of the gospel. The choir. Is already rehearsing. So which choir would you rather be in? Which song would you rather sing? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, it feels as if day after day comes and goes and nothing ever changes. It feels as if the end is never going to come. And yet you and your word are faithful and true. And we know that the last day is coming. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see that day coming. And then to recognize that in Christ, in Christ, it has already come. Lord, I pray that you put it in our hearts to want to sing with this heavenly choir, songs of joy, rather than stubbornly persisting in our earthly song of woe. Lord, we pray that as those who have put our faith in Christ, even today, we would sing this song of joy. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.